Welcome to episode six of our podcast. In this episode, I want to talk about the aftermath of World War II in Eastern Europe and how it relates to what is going on in Ukraine today. The second week of May 1945 marked the beginning of a new era in European history. On the 8th of that month, Nazi Germany surrendered unconditionally to Allied forces on the Western Front, and by May 11th, the remaining Nazi forces had surrendered to the Soviet Army in the East. That was nearly 80 years ago. The end of Nazism in Germany turned the page on a new era in Europe, but it wasn't a clean slate. The desire to avoid a future filled with the suffering and sacrifice the war caused shaped what followed, so much so that World War II still affects events today. This episode will lay out some of the history of the Cold War that followed and show how the lessons from that past are being ignored today and could condemn us all to repeat the horrors of war on a global scale. First, let's imagine how the Americans felt. After hostilities ended in Europe, the United States was on the verge of defeating the Japanese Empire in the Pacific. It was roughly three months from the surrender of Germany to the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan. During that time, leaders from the three Allied nations, Churchill from Great Britain, President Truman from the United States, and Joseph Stalin from the Soviet Union, met to decide the immediate fate of post-war Europe. They finalized the creation of occupation zones in Germany and the redrawing of borders for Poland, among other concerns. But the thought on everyone's mind at this point could be summed up with, quote, never again, unquote. In order to ensure that they would never again have to fight a world war in Europe, each leader charted what he thought was the most prudent course to prevent a repeat scenario. The Americans originally tried to stay out of the war, and just like World War I, were unsuccessful. The attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, finally brought America into the conflict, but the truth was that U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt had been preparing the country for eventual entry anyway. For all of the things FDR gets credit for, this is the one that is probably overlooked and underappreciated. Overnight, the Japanese attack changed Americans' desire from one of isolation to a call for war with nothing short of total victory. And make no mistake, America was at war. Unlike the experience of Americans today with our wars in the Middle East or even Vietnam, World War II was much different. It was a total war effort. Basic needs of ordinary Americans were rationed to support the troops. Gasoline, rubber, sugar, meat, coffee, butter, canned goods, textiles, and shoes were just some of the things that were strictly rationed. There were shortages on other things not subject to rations as well. Prices were controlled, and the only way around these government controls was to break the law and try to get things on the black market. Also, besides the daily reminders in people's economic lives, Americans displayed blue and gold stars in their windows to signify relatives serving in the armed forces. On every street in World War II America, you knew which of your neighbors had relatives in harm's way, or in the case of gold stars, which had been killed. The government also disseminated propaganda to keep American support strong. The point is that when the war was over, there wasn't an American whose life it hadn't affected in some way. So when it was over, the prevailing attitude of most Americans was never again. If the Americans felt the war daily and were dead set on doing whatever was necessary to prevent another one, it's not difficult to imagine how the Russian people felt. America was crucial to defeating Hitler and Nazism, but the sacrifice of the Soviet Union was magnitudes greater. 
The Soviet Union wasn't as well supplied as the British and Americans. The Soviets did not have anywhere near the manufacturing capacity of the U.S., and where Americans faced rations, Russians faced real starvation. What the Russians did have was a leader who was unconcerned about the cost in lives it would take to defeat Germany. So, Stalin being the ruthless dictator he was, simply threw millions of people into the grinder to wear down the Germans in a war of attrition. Estimates place the number of Americans killed in the war around 420,000. This includes those killed in the Pacific Theater as well as the European Theater. Russia lost nearly three times that many people at the Battle of Stalingrad. The Soviet Union had by far the most killed during the war, with some estimates as high as 27 million people. If any nation had developed a policy of never again, it was Russia. So Stalin also charted a course after the war to prevent them from having to repeat what they endured. But there are two differences between the Americans and the Russians. America was never invaded, thanks to its fortunate geographical advantage of isolation due to the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Russia, however, was invaded, and the war was fought in large part on their soil. Also, Russia had a history of being invaded. They fought Germany in World War I. A century before that, they were invaded by the French and fought a desperate war of survival against Napoleon. And Stalin was a member of Lenin's circle when the U.S. landed troops in Russia in 1918, troops that had engaged in hostilities against the Red Army and the Russian Civil War. The other difference between Americans and the Soviets was that while the American leadership was chosen in free elections, Stalin was a brutal dictator and as such could impose his will without any other considerations. Stalin decided that the best way to prevent another war that would take over 20 million Soviet lives was to control the nations their army had overrun on their way to Berlin. If another invasion was going to come from Western Europe, they were going to have to get through these buffer states first, where Poles, Czechs, Hungarians, Romanians, and Bulgarians would bleed the invaders before the Soviets had to sacrifice its own people. It cannot be understated how important this strategy, or the Russian memory of invasion, had on both the events of the Cold War or on the events going on today. As I stated at the opening, World War II still has a profound effect on the modern world. I could do an entire podcast on how it changed America domestically, let alone how it affected world politics, but that is something I'll leave for a future episode. There is one other nation here that seems to escape the attention of people who talk about Europe over the last 80 years, and that nation is Poland. Poland had strong diplomatic ties with Great Britain, and World War II got underway in Europe in 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland, and Great Britain and France entered the war as a result. Hitler also signed an agreement with Stalin to divide Poland amongst them, an agreement Stalin had assumed would prevent the German leader from moving any further east. After the war, Great Britain pressed for Stalin's assurances that he would allow free and open elections in Poland soon after it was over. When it became clear to the West that Stalin was going to break that agreement and keep Poland under his sphere of influence, Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech and the Cold War was on. By the time of Churchill's Iron Curtain speech in 1946, it was clear to everyone in the West that Stalin had no intention of allowing free elections in the countries in Eastern Europe. The problem was that one of the tenets of Soviet communism was its stated goal of spreading the Marxist revolution. To the West, these countries weren't simply buffer states used to increase Soviet security, but instead, they were examples of this policy of communist expansion. 
The next year, the Truman administration codified their position that containment of communism was the official policy of the United States. In 1947, in a speech before a joint session of Congress, Truman declared that, quote, I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. In what became known as the Truman Doctrine, this officially put Stalin and the Soviet Union on notice that the U.S. would oppose, by force if necessary, the expansion of communism outside the existing Soviet sphere of influence. Later that year, Congress passed the National Security Act, which among other things created the powerful intelligence apparatus that today acts as a shadow government outside the view of the people. It created the CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the National Security Council, and reorganized the Department of War into the current Department of Defense. Rather than draw down the military to near non-existence as the U.S. had done after every major war, defense spending kept the nation on a war footing and the U.S. instituted the first peacetime draft in the nation's history. The year 1947 also saw the beginning of the Marshall Plan, where the United States gave billions of dollars to European countries to help them rebuild their infrastructure and economies that were crushed by World War II. Named after George C. Marshall, who served as the U.S. Army Chief of Staff during the war and Secretary of State under Truman, its goal was to prevent communism from getting a foothold in Western Europe. In a speech at Harvard University, Marshall stated, quote, The United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace, unquote. While the Eastern European nations under Soviet control refused to participate in Marshall's ambitious program, it did successfully rebuild the economy of Western Europe and keep those nations from turning to communism out of desperation. The last major event of Truman's administration that exists today, and arguably the one that is driving events in Ukraine currently, was the founding of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, in 1949. The treaty created a defense pact where an attack on any one member would be considered an attack on all. The original 12 founding members of NATO are Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. During the Cold War, Greece, Turkey, Spain, and West Germany joined the organization as well. In 1955, the Soviet Union and the Eastern European nations under their control countered with the creation of their own mutual defense organization known as the Warsaw Pact. For the next 35 years, these two organizations stood across from each other in Europe, both armed and ready to commit hostilities at a moment's notice. Tensions didn't subside until after the fall of communism in Eastern Europe beginning in 1989 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. And remember Poland? World War II began when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. The Cold War began when Stalin refused to follow through on a promise to allow free elections in Poland in 1946. And in 1988, Poland again became the flashpoint for immense change in Europe. Workers in Poland began a series of massive strikes. This presented a problem for the Soviet leadership, as Poland was officially a communist nation and communism portrayed itself as a workers' utopia. 
A year later, in 1989, the trade union solidarity had gained enough power that the communist government fell. This led to a chain reaction throughout the region. Hungary began to allow border crossings into Austria, and mass demonstrations in the German city of Leipzig and protests in East Berlin led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the first free travel between East and West Germany in over four decades. Germany was unified in 1990, and the Soviet Union held its first presidential election. When 1991 came to an end, the Soviet Union had disintegrated and several new nations were born. Among those were Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, and the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. That brief moment in time from 1988 through the end of 1992 was truly an amazing period. Like all things, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the return to free elections in the former Warsaw Pact nations did not occur in a vacuum. The credit for the West's triumph in the Cold War has been given primarily to two world leaders. U.S. President Ronald Reagan deserves much of the credit. His strong stance put pressure on the Soviet Union to keep pace with the military modernization and buildup the U.S. was undergoing. Just as equally, Mikhail Gorbachev gets credit for being a partner in the ongoing negotiations with Reagan that led to the reductions in nuclear weapons. But more importantly, Gorbachev refused to use military force to crush the uprisings in Poland and elsewhere, as had been done in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. Had Gorbachev followed his predecessor's examples, the current world would look very different than the one we know today. Also, the U.S. president at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, George H.W. Bush, maintained a very subdued approach to those events. This too is important because had he and other NATO leaders started cheering on the protests or had taken a very public victory lap at the impending demise of the Soviet state, it is likely that hardliners in the Soviet Communist Party would have pressured Gorbachev to act with force to maintain the status quo. In fact, NATO leaders did more than just sit on the sidelines. And this is where the shadow of World War II loomed over those events and the events today. Remember, the Soviet Union lost 27 million people in World War II. It was a war where they were invaded by a European power from the West, the same one they fought in World War I, and that invasion in World War II had reached the outskirts of Moscow, just as Napoleon had a little over a century earlier. In 1989, after the Berlin Wall fell and travel opened up between East and West Germany, the horrors of World War II were only a generation removed from the current Soviet leadership. During the summit meeting in Malta between George H.W. Bush and Gorbachev, Bush assured Gorbachev that NATO had no plans to take advantage of the impending fall of communism in Eastern Europe. Gorbachev was against a united Germany as a part of NATO. German Chancellor Helmut Kohl relayed a question from U.S. Secretary of State James Baker to Gorbachev, where Baker inquired whether Gorbachev preferred a reunited Germany outside of NATO or one with Germany as a part of NATO, but with a promise NATO would not expand, quote, one inch eastward, unquote. Gorbachev's position was that enlarging NATO towards the Soviet border was completely unacceptable. In a later summit in Washington, D.C., Bush assured Gorbachev that German unification in NATO would never be directed at the USSR. A month later, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher conferred with Gorbachev and stated that NATO, quote, 
must find ways to give the Soviet Union confidence that its security would be assured, unquote. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, these assurances were all but tossed aside. Since Putin's rise to power, this has been primarily his foreign policy concern. He too has said that expansion of NATO towards the Russian border is unacceptable. The Russian people, even those 80 years removed from the last invasion of their homeland, still have the loss of 27 million souls as part of their national consciousness. Assurances were made, yet let's just take a look at the scoreboard. Since 1991, NATO, an alliance that was created to defend Western Europe against a country that technically no longer exists, has expanded east. The following nations have been added to the organization. The Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, and the Baltic states of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. Also, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and Macedonia, and just this week, Finland. Also, Latvia, Estonia, and Finland border Russia. And if Ukraine is added as some people are pushing for, then the only remaining country that shared a European border that is not a member of NATO would be Belarus. It is easy to blame the current conflict solely on the theory that Vladimir Putin is the new Hitler, and his invasion of Ukraine was born from his desire to get the USSR band back together. It's easy, but foolish. Rarely is anything in this world a simple binary choice between good and evil. If there is anything people can take away from this podcast, it is this fact. Shallow, binary thinking is dangerous and invariably leads to the wrong conclusions. It is better to understand the depth of an issue and base opinions, or more importantly, policy, on that understanding. Vladimir Putin was once head of the Russian KGB. There are no doubts that he can use brutal tactics to achieve his goals. But that being said, he does not make decisions without reason. Just like the rest of the Russian people, the events and consequences of World War II, regardless of how long ago they occurred, are still part of his national worldview. Besides, to put it in terms that Americans should understand, look at slavery in the United States. Slavery legally ended with the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution in 1865. That was 80 years before the end of World War II, or nearly twice as long ago. Yet slavery still looms as the issue that divides much of this nation. Why would we think that the deaths of 27 million people in World War II would be something forgotten in Russia? There is the saying regarding those who refuse to learn the lessons of history. NATO, after promises from the West not to do so, has expanded and is now on the Russian border. The world is rushing headlong into something that should never be repeated in human history, and all because the lesson of the Second World War is being ignored. That concludes this episode. In the next episode, we'll look at why every cop show on television has used the phrase, you have the right to remain silent, and the events that are responsible. Thanks again for listening. If you have any comments about the information presented on the show in general, or any topics you would like to see covered, please leave a message on the YouTube channel for this podcast, youtube.com slash at 805historian, or on Twitter at 805historian. See you next time.